Good morning to you all. I am up here again. And if any of you know a drummer, we would love to have them. I am a percussionist. That means I can play one thing at a time. This morning during practice, I actually was, at one point, I was trying to see if I could do the kick while I was doing the snare, and every time I kicked, the snare would stop. So I uh, would love to have a, uh, a drummer, uh, should any of you know of one. That would be great. Thank you. Um, this past summer, we have been uh, discussing what it means to experience fullness of life, uh, living life fully has been the name of this series. Jesus tells us of his intention for us to live this kind of a life in John 10.10, where he says the enemy's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. And in stark contrast, my purpose is to give life in all of its fullness, a life so full and abundant that it overflows everywhere you go on everyone around you. As a part of this time, we've considered four primary purposes that Jesus has given us as a people as well as as a church. We've talked about loving God, what we call encountering God. We've talked about loving others, uh, what we call experiencing friendships. We've talked about going and making disciples, uh, what we call expanding community, and then teaching others to do what he has taught us to do or embracing wholeness. For a number of weeks, we have been considering the outward element of going and making disciples, and I'm going to conclude that topic at least for now, uh, today, but before we head there, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the privilege that we have to gather together, the freedom that we have to come to know you better to hang out and get acquainted with those who are both seeking you and who know you. And I welcome your Holy Spirit to be with us, with me as I share. I pray that you would just help us to to grasp the heart of, of what you want for us today. And particularly as I discuss some of these various details about culture diversity, that you would just help us to lay hold of your heart for others. If we can grasp that, then all else will really come into place. Thank you for our guests that are here. We ask that you would meet them in a very, very profound way. In Jesus' name, amen. In Acts chapter 1, Luke shares with us the very last words of Jesus. And I wonder if you knew that you were going to be leaving your family and closest friends and you were going to have the opportunity to tell them one last thing, it would probably be something really important, right? I think that was Jesus' heart as well. I think he took advantage of this moment rather than seeing it wasted. And Luke tells us in Acts chapter 1, that when the apostles were with Jesus, they asked him again, Lord, has the time now come for you to deliver Israel and restore our kingdom? Three years they have been with Jesus, and three years they have not fully grasped who he is and the kingdom that he was bringing. He replied to them, The Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. 
But do know this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. The Jews and Jesus' disciples expected the Messiah to be a political and military ruler who would deliver them from the Romans and establish Israel as an independent political and military power. But in these final words to his disciple, Jesus brushes their question aside and he speaks to them not about what he was going to do, but about what they were going to do that they were going to usher and expand his kingdom into their community, into their neighboring areas, among people that were like them and among people that were diverse from them. And they were going to take this good news to the ends of the world. And then he left leaving them with mouths gaping and eyes staring up into the sky. Rather than him being the one that was going to go from here to change the world, he commissioned and sent them to make a difference, to be influencers, to be change agents, to be those who loved others. And then Luke describes in the rest of the book of Acts, the story of how they did that. Chapter 1 through chapter 7 tells of the growth and expansion of the church in Jerusalem. Chapters 8 through 12 of the book of Acts tells about the expansion into Judea and then Samaria. And then chapters 13 and 28 tells of its expansion to Rome and from Rome beyond. And it's interesting as you study and look at the book of Acts, at these various transitions, these various moves from one culture to another, from one people to another, that there always was challenge and conflict. There were differences of understandings. There were worldviews. There were religious systems that required there to be a crossing and an embracing and a sharing. Being outward focused, willing to share God's love with others who are not of our same culture or ethnic background requires a heart of love. It requires a desire. But it requires more than that. It also requires knowledge about the differences between people and various worldviews. Paul says in the book of Ephesians that pastors and leaders of the church are given to equip the saints to do the work of ministry. So this morning, I want to share with you, I want to equip you with some tools. These tools are going to come from anthropological and cultural studies. Some of you may go, well, where's the Bible? Well, the Bible is that we need to go to the various peoples of the world. That's what the Bible says. I'm now going to talk with us and help us consider how can we do that more effectively. 
And I would suggest that we need to do that by understanding the diversity of humankind and how we relate to one another from different backgrounds. I began uh, a couple weeks ago when I was introducing this by describing one of the more significant problems that we face as human beings as we relate to those who are of other cultures and ethnic groups, and that is what's called ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism looks at others from who are from a different cultural tradition or group or people, but we look at them through the lens of our own ethnocultural group. It often includes negative or critical thinking about others based on limited or very often skewed understanding. And as a result, we judge or make conclusions that create barriers and hindrances to acceptance and relationships. I shared with us as well from a book called The Beginner's Guide to Crossing Cultures, Making Friends in a Multicultural World by Patty Lane, a Christian anthropologist whose goal within the book was to help equip Christians with understandings about the diversities that we face in our world. And I described um, last week four key concepts, the first being the idea of culture, Culture being a system of meanings and values that shapes one's behavior. We talked about stereotypes. Stereotypes originate with someone making an observation about one member of another group or a few members of another group and then applying that observation to the rest of that group. Archetypes are sort of the antithesis of that. Archetypes originate with someone making an observation about members of their own group. And then the fourth concept we looked at was the idea of misattribution. Misattribution is attributing meaning or motive to someone's behavior based upon one's own culture or experience. At some level, Uh, echoing ethnocentrism. I want to share with you six more concepts this morning from Lane's book with the goal, as I said, to equip us with understandings that perhaps may help us when, in fact, we attempt to love and reach out to others who are different than us. These uh, concepts really describe six lenses through which people view life and relationships Understanding uh, is helpful for both understanding ourselves as well as others, and it can help us to more effectively hit the target of loving and relating to others in ways that are meaningful to them. One of the things that Claire and I uh, learned very, very early on as we counseled uh, with people, and particularly married couples, was, was asking a really simple question of each of the individuals, which was, What does it look like for you to feel loved? Very often in close relationships, because of our lack of understanding, we have a tendency to love others in a way that we feel and experience love. And if they're just like us, that can work because then we're loving them in a way that they feel loved. However, very often in life, Many of those around us are not like us. And so if I express love to my wife in a way that I feel loved, 
That might be really familiar to me, but it misses the mark for her. And I would suggest as I go through these understandings that we're going to have a similar phenomenon. Our goal is to love others. And if we're going to love others, then we're going to need to find out how to communicate and how to love them in a way that ministers to them, not just that feels comfortable to us. And so the idea and concept of crossing cultures, of of reaching out to those who are different than us, requires us to minimize ourselves and maximize our care for others. The first uh, topic, these six um, concepts that Lane introduces is the concept of where are we? And she describes the importance of context to people. Context includes things such as environment, setting, location, decorations. It also incorporates process, how a meeting or event is conducted, how people are treated. And then it also includes the aspect of body language, facial expressions, and tone of voice. And in this material, Lane describes that cultures tend to be considered either high-context cultures or low-context cultures. And there's a number of aspects of that that I want to look at, and I'll give you an example of each one as we go through it. For high-context cultures... The context of an event is as important as the event itself. The context is as important as the event. In low-context cultures, the content of the message is more important than the context. Okay, Randy, what in the world does that mean? Sounds Greek to me. All right. Think about an awards ceremony. We are, as a, an American population, generally a low-context culture relative to the fact that the message that we present to us is more important and the setting is less important. So here in this environment here, for most of us, we're okay with this environment. But in reality, it is, would not be all that okay for a high-context It's too informal. If, in fact, we were giving out awards today to individuals who had completed a class or completed a project in some way, and we did that after the service while people were talking and milling around, that would be very disconcerting to those of a high-context culture who would best be loved if, in fact, we had a more formal setting where there were introductions, where we had the certificates and all that. Does that make sense? But in our culture, you know, inviting people up while people are leaving, I mean, it doesn't feel quite the norm. That's a little extreme. But that's the kind of thing we're talking about. For us, the message is, hey, I'm giving you an award. Great job. Pat on the back. But for those of a high-context culture, The actual event itself is meaningful and helpful to them. For high-context cultures, here's here's a unique one. The listener is responsible for understanding communication. But in a low context culture, the speaker is responsible for the communication. So in our situation here in America, 
and those who teach and speak will often say, are you getting what I'm understanding? Are you getting what I'm understanding? Are you getting what I'm saying? Are you, are you following what I'm saying here? Do you getting my meaning? Because in our low context culture, I'm responsible for you to understand. But in a high context culture, the listener is responsible. So in a language learning situation, for those of a high context culture, in a setting, the teacher is not responsible. So they just kind of rattle on and give your points and they ask, how you doing? And it's always, yes, I'm doing great because I'm responsible and yes, I'm doing it. So again, there is a diversity here, a way of relating that if we were in fact relating to those who were of a high context, we would have trouble and struggle with the formality even of this and of this aspect. And so we can create barriers There can be conflicts as a result of a difference that isn't right or wrong. It simply is a difference. Let me give you a third uh, area she talks about. In high context cultures, there is no distinction between the idea and the person. In low context cultures, they and others are defined by their recent achievements. I'll explain this one by giving you the example of long and short-term memory. In high-context cultures, if we were to describe and think about them, they tend to have long-term memory. What someone does younger in their lives influences them the whole rest of their lives and the way people see them and view them. Long-term memory. In a low-context culture, if you've been nice to me recently, that counts. That distinction, again, causes great distress between peoples if in some point in time I have harmed or been rude or disrespectful to somebody in a high-context culture. In that culture, it will be much more understandable and normal for them to hold that and to think about me no matter what I say ever again within that context. Does that make sense? But in our culture, you know, live and let go, let a little, you know, year go by, a couple years go by, and we're all okay. We're really not, (laughs) sadly, but but it's all good. All right, let me give you another one. Uh, In high context cultures, experience, this is similar to the last one, including one's perception of it is a fact. Experience, including what I think about it, is a fact. In low-context cultures, rational thinking is preferred, and the facts are the facts. Let me give you an example in a business dealing. So, in a business deal, those from a low-context culture want to simply deal with the facts. Here's the, you know, the income and expense statements. Here's the, the revenues, the balance sheets, and um, these are the facts. And so let's do a business deal. Whereas for those of a high context, my reputation, my trustworthiness as a businessman is significantly involved in this business deal. As 
a low context culture, I can say the facts look great. But if the individual from the high context culture sees me or views me as untrustworthy, it doesn't matter what the papers say. For us, the facts are the facts. Here they are, black and white. But in a high context culture, the character, the person, the perception that they have is is the fact as well. So, again, I, we're not going to grasp all of these and, you know, hour from now you're not going to remember hardly any of this. The heart of what I'm sharing with you is that there are distinguishable differences in the way peoples relate and we need to learn and understand the people that we're talking to and working with if we want to share with them in ways that are meaningful to them. Last one of this group relative to high context and low context cultures is that high context cultures view life from a holistic standpoint, whereas low context cultures, life is viewed much more compartmentally. I think we understand this one, again, in a, in a, as a Western uh, country, United States tends to be very easy to compartmentalize things. Um, the whole idea of public and private lives is really not too much of a problem in the Western world. We just kind of, you know, if somebody's private life is over here, it's maybe a little messed up, that's okay, we'll still, we'll still you know, allow them to lead or whatever over here. But in a high-context culture, they will not make that distinction, that difference. For them, private life, public life are, have to be seen as one. How we believe, what we think, what we feel, how we treat others, all of those elements will be considered when they're viewing an individual and a situation. Whereas we, from a low-context culture, have a greater ability to sort of compartmentalize things. We even do that relative to our religious experience to a great degree as a low-context cultures. Church on Sundays, time with God, rest of the week, we do what we want. We make a compartmentalization. For many peoples of the world, particularly from a high-context culture, they don't make that distinction. Life is a whole and a complete. All right, so that's kind of the topic, where are we, the importance of context. Second one of these six is what drives us. This is a, a distinguishing factor that has to do with the value of activity. This one will make a whole lot more sense to you. You're going to go, okay, Randy's talking about something in English now. Um, this, uh, what drives us is the distinction between being and doing. Now, we might imagine that this is somewhat related to personality types, and it can be, but what we're talking about is as a people, as a people group within a culture, there are cultures that are much more about being than they are about doing. Being cultures value relationships and quality of life. Does the activity enhance and build relationship? Results matter but only unto the end of relationships. In a doing culture, there's a value for results and materialism. Does the activity produce results? If that's not America, you know, primary cultural group, I don't know what is. Yes, relationships matter, but unto the end of accomplishment. What can we do together? Not Let's be together and maybe something will happen. 
Because being together can be unproductive in a doing culture. Just hanging out, for those of us who are driven by doing, is okay for a little while, but then let's do something. So there are are elements now not you know our whole US culture is not necessarily a doing culture there are within it uh, elements and groups and people who are much more thoughtful and concerned about being uh, than they are about doing um, i think that's even a kickback of the you know the 20 somethings now relative to the interesting community over against all of the you know awards and activities of their parents so what drives us? That's number two. A second one, the value of activity. Another characteristics that difference uh, is often different between cultural groups is who's in charge, the influence of authority. Uh, two primary uh, cultural understandings here. There are cultures that tend to be more hierarchical and those that tend to be more egalitarian. In a hierarchical uh, culture, an unequal treatment of people is okay. It's accepted and expected and it is considered appropriate. Unequal treatment in a hierarchical because those who are higher up have authority and they have the right, the ability to mistreat those who are under. In a hierarchical society, they are much more formal they are formal in more expected ways of dressing and behaving. There are specific ways to relate to others, to express oneself to others. Um, where we put our silverware on a table setting is a kickback to an older, more formal, more hierarchical. You know, there's the two forks, right, on the right. Is it on the right or on the left? They're on the left. The two forks on the left, and, and one of them smaller because it's the, the salad one. And then... How about the spoon across the top? I know it is, but I mean, what's the point? Why can't we put it down here with the other spoon? Anyway, a distinction between hierarchical, believe it or not, formal, that's a part of that. And then in hierarchical culture, there's a third element here related to this, which is a, a high uncertainty avoidance. There is significant discomfort with ambiguous situations. Again, hierarchical, formal, authoritarian. They, they want things to be done and managed in very precise and specific ways. They're duplicatable. You always relate to this level person this way. You always can treat this person. It, it, there's no ambiguity. In an egalitarian culture, all persons are viewed as having equal value and equal rights. And so unequal treatment is absolutely antagonistic to an egalitarian culture. Also, in an egalitarian culture, informality in the acceptance of diverse ways of dressing and behaving, freedom to relate to others and to express oneself is also a part of that. Again, if we have an acceptance that there is equality, then how you dress or how you act is, doesn't really matter. There isn't the formality of I have to perform, I have to present myself in this particular way. 
And then as well, relative to uncertainty avoidance in an egalitarian culture, there is a low uncertainty avoidance. There is a much heightened comfortableness with ambiguous situations. So we can we can hang out and, and manage things that are ambiguous. So this is important because when we relate, as we have people that come among us that are from a much more uh, hierarchical cultural background, when we respond to them and relate to them in such casual, informal ways, it is awkward for them. They don't know how to relate in our informal setting. Does that make sense? And similarly, there is a high opportunity for misattribution for them to feel disrespected, devalued, not considered. So how do we go about, oh my gosh, you know, here's Ayup. He is from Turkey. I don't remember your name. Stephanie is here. Stephanie is from China. And number of others that are here. How do I know how to relate to their different? I can't relate to Ayup like I do Stephanie. They're from two significantly different cultural groups. We ask questions. We recognize that we are the one that is does not know. And we learn. We ask questions. We share. We offer respect. And if we can remember any of these things, we might imagine, let's see, they might be from a more formal, maybe hierarchical society. So maybe I should relate to them more precisely and not be so informal. I mentioned last week that we, uh, we a uh, number of us from our church as well as some intervarsity uh, group uh, did an international student dinner a couple of Friday nights ago. And uh, as a part of that, there were uh, two young ladies from uh, another uh, country and, and cultural group. And Clara was specifically spending quite a bit of time talking with them. And at one point, I was kind of sitting across the room and I was relating to them like I would most of the young ladies here. I'm kind of fatherly. You know, I had five daughters, so I'm very informal. I'm caring. I, 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 I didn't express physical touch, but I was still being me in that setting. And all of a sudden, my little brain went, you know what? Their culture has a really different understanding of how stranger men would relate to them as women. Oops. <laughs> kind of pulled back and you know, kind of withdrew from my informality and my engagement of, of them even uh, because of the potential, though I don't know their culture well, uh, still the potential was I knew from um, the little I knew. So who's in charge? A couple more. Who am I? The source of identity. This forms the basis for relationship with others as well as how we view ourselves. And there are significant differences related to the source of identity. There are what are called collective cultures that view themselves more as a part of a group or family, tribe, or community. And then there are more individualistic cultures where people are seen more as individuals separate from the family or community. And again, I think we're, that one's a, a clear one similar to this, uh, some of these other ones like the value of, idea, of activity. Um, we are, in the U.S., prim the primary culture is very individualistic. And we 
there's a switch and there's a swing, there's a change that's occurring among younger people for a heightened community. But even that is significantly uh, strained by the fact that so much of community is now coming through the Internet. How do you have community? Well, we have networks and we have Facebook and we have, what are, what are you called when you're linked on Facebook? Your fr- friends. There you go. That's a nice word. But are we? Some are because they're friends outside of Facebook. But then there's the hundreds and thousands, maybe millions of people who are friends on Facebook who've never had a face-to-face relationship. How does community work for that? How is that working for those out of a cultural understanding who sees the value and appreciates collectivity in their culture in contrast to individualistic? Just issues of differences that we need to understand. Here's another one that we all know really well. When do we start our sense of time? Um, For many people of different groups, time is seen as abundant and relational. It's time to start when everyone is present. Time to start doesn't have to do with a clock. It has to do with a relationship. When people are there that need to be there, then it's time to start. There is an ability to relax and enjoy, to be now-oriented. In contrast, cultures such as ours are seen, see time more as limited and activity-driven. Time is seen as a possession, a resource that we must use wisely. Time would be something we would say in our culture, use it or lose it. And interesting, as I was thinking about this, realizing that in a culture where time is abundant, perhaps even unlimited, they are now oriented. I shared that a moment ago. Meaning that they are able to enjoy the moment of time, of being with people. In a, a time culture where it is limited, we have a tendency to be future-oriented. I need to get by, I need to complete now so that I can do something else. And it causes us to less value now. Because we look at the clock and we think, oh my gosh, it's 20 till 12. Let's see, at 12 o'clock, they really should be done at least by 12 Because at 12, I need to kind of, you know, I've got something in the oven or, you know, let's see, I've got lunch after this with people. And then, gee, what am I doing this afternoon? That's right. Oh, yeah, I have a meeting tonight. We're very future oriented. We lose the opportunity to experience the joy of now. So there are distinctions and differences between us as people, as between cultural groups that we need to recognize that the world is not just like me and that I'm the one who needs to accommodate if I am going to love. Loving another means that I consider them more important than me. And I think relative to reaching out to others, there is a tendency for us as Christians to do that which is comfortable and familiar. 
to do that which is easy. And it is okay to reach out to people like us. Don't, don't hear me in all these weeks as I talk about outward and particularly as I've been heightening our understandings about cultural diversity that I am in any way suggesting that to reach out to those like us is somehow less valuable or important than reaching out to those who are different. They're not. They're, the, they're both important and necessary. However, it's going to be easier for us to reach out to those who are like us it's going to require more work to reach out to those who are different and we would even suggest within our christian biblical tradition that there are some who actually are gifted and have ministry of crossing cultural crossing cultures they're called missionaries they're called apostles those who cross a culture, cross a people. But the challenge here is, is that our culture is not monocultural in the United States. Those of us who live here in San Antonio, this is not a monocultural city. We no longer live in, nowhere is there monocultural anymore, hardly. I'm sure maybe in some worlds and tribes and circumstances there's much greater. But we live in a multi-ethnic world. Turn on your computer, turn on your TV, go to the mall. And we have a responsibility, no, an opportunity to reach out to those who are displaced by coming here to our country, who are longing for something new, perhaps, yes, something beyond what they have experienced, yes, but in ways that we can reach out that they feel loved and cared for and valued. The last uh, category that the author describes is what's really real. Differences of worldview. Uh, worldview is, is the culturally agreed upon perception of reality which bridges the gap between sort of objective reality and our perception of it. I'm going to skip that slide that has the one that says pre-modern, modern, post-modern. I'm going to go to the next slide. Um, I think uh, we can skip this one. See if you can get there. It'll take you a minute. to One more. There you go. I just want a uh, worldview. I thought this one actually, the other, we, I, I just don't want to, you're bored. So I want to make sure that I'm a little sensitive. And, and it's, that previous slide should be about five weeks of a class at school. But anyway, I think this one you'll get. So in worldviews, different worldviews would have different understandings of what causes an illness. And based on the cause of an illness, there would be a particular treatment. So as an example, in some cultures, illness is caused by evil spirits. And the treatment then would be to appease or rid yourself of an evil spirit. Now, we don't have a whole lot of, of agreement and value for that in the U.S. American culture. However, within the Christian community, perhaps the charismatic Christian community, there might be some more value or, yeah, okay, if there is a demonic influence in your life, then the answer to that is to get rid of it. So... Second one would be a more typical um, Western understanding. What is it that causes illness? 
Well, biological differences, uh, changes, body chemistry, germs, and so the treatment would be medicine, surgery, maybe herbs, uh, depending on uh, how your approach is these days. Another uh, worldview might see the cause of illness as an imbalance of energy. And so if we're going to treat an imbalance of energy, the treatment would be to balance the energy. And again, we don't, that one just kind of doesn't work real well for most of us here, but that is really a true worldview. That is what many people operate out of. How about the cause of illness being a curse? Again, not one that we have a whole lot of understanding about. The treatment in that application would be the removal or the counteracting of the curse. And then a last one, again, one this time that we might relate to, cause of illness coming from broken relationships with people, the treatment being forgiveness and or confession. So this is just one small area of worldview, the cause of illness. There's thousands of these that are different between people's and cultures. I want to, this morning, somewhat as a conclusion, to invite Ayup uh, Guzel to come up. Uh, Ayup is uh, from Turkey, and he is a uh, graduate student at UTSA. We've met him this past year uh, through um, the UTSA group, and uh, Ayup is Muslim, and he but he loves and values us as Christians. He has, if you've heard his story, his father has been involved in Turkey uh, relating to and helping Christians there uh, in their faith and building their churches and things like that. And so Ayyub has been, has been among us as a Muslim, uh, but as one who has also experienced the cultural diversity of coming to the U.S. And I thought it might be interesting to hear him share a couple of examples of how this culture diversity has worked for him as he has uh, come among us. Thank you very much, Randy, for <clears throat> having me today. And thanks God for bestowing his mercy upon us and uh, make us get together today. And I am very <clears throat> grateful to talk to these lovely Christian friends. And as an international student, I, I have uh, once got a small problem of course, before coming to the United States, we have, I have some kind of stereotypes about the United States because of the media impact on us, and which was the national, national uh, profiling or racism. And uh, <clears throat> in the last two years, I have, <clears throat> I have once uh, been in this kind of situation that last year I was in the University of Delaware, which is north, uh, northeast side United States, and... Um, I have hurt my shoulder and went to the hospital and the guy um, asked me my nationality. I said I'm from Turkey and I guess, I reckon he thought Turkey is a Middle Eastern country or different country that he, he doesn't know, I guess, because Turkey is really different and democratic and secular country. So... He didn't welcome me very well, and he kept, <laughs> he kept me waiting five hours without having a doctor mm. and without giving me a medicine, even though I have one of the best insurance, health insurance in the United States. 
So I have been treated differently racially once in my uh, life in the United States, but rest of the, my time I have never been treated negatively or badly by, by any of Americans, and I am very grateful and uh, very grateful to have this kind of um, Christian friends. And as Randy said, my father used to work for uh, for uh, American Embassy in Ankara, which is the capital city of Turkey. And my family has been involved with many Christians. And I am very grateful to be here, especially in this wonderful day. And most of for most of us, of course, this is sad day 9-11, but thanks God to make us come here today to, to maybe share our, our love, opinions, and in this wonderful 9-11 anniversary. And thank you very much again for having me. I want to... Uh, close by considering as we encounter individuals, people uh, from different cultural diversity, uh, ethnicities, what are some of the responses that we can have? Well, one that we have had and many of us perhaps struggled with 10 years ago was what is called xenophobia which is a fear of those of other cultures. One of the things that um, I don't know why I didn't personally grasp this, but in May, Claire and I were at a vineyard conference that was talking about reach peoples, outreaching out to others, and she attended a couple of workshops for um, how, to, how to reach out to and to love Muslims. And one of the very simple things that she was presented uh, in that was a presentation of a scale of the kinds of individuals from uh, Muslim background. Yes, there are terrorists within that culture group. Friends, there's terrorists within the Western world as well. We just don't look at them the same way. But that distinction is a small percentage of the world's population in comparison. All the way to those perhaps who would be considered secular Muslims who don't follow Muslim religious practices perhaps at all. Similar to those within our own country who perhaps live in a Christian world, maybe went to church as a kid, but are secular in their understandings. And then the diversity in between. We can, however, overcome a fear by welcoming God and His Holy Spirit to overcome our insecurities and to fill us with His love and value of others. We've talked about the problem of ethnocentrism. That is another way that we can respond, believing our own culture being superior of others. There's also a response which is called segregationism, which is different cultures are fine, let's just keep them separate. We can also respond with invitation. That sounds pretty good, but the problem is, is at the heart of it is that we want others to become like us. 
we welcome, but with the goal of them becoming like us. Or we can respond with celebration, learning from and enjoying the diversity of others. I started last week looking at the book of Revelation and within that presentation of that incredible story that John tells, on numerous occasions there are gatherings in heaven of incredible worship that so is far beyond anything that we experience here on earth. And in each and every one of those occasions, there are people there from every people, tribe, and language. In heaven someday, we are not going to be monocultural. We will continue to be, and the expressions of language and of cultural diversity are going to be celebrated someday in heaven. And if it's going to be someday in heaven, maybe we should figure out how to do it here. As we have mentioned, uh, today is the 10th anniversary for the tragedy of 9-11-2011. And this morning we want to take just a couple of moments to um, honor the memory of those who died in the attack and who lost friends. But we want, I want to do that in a way that is uh, pretty profound. And I have asked Ayup to come stand with me and for us together to pray for us as a community, for us as a people, and for our world. And we stand here this morning in memory of 10 years ago when, yes, some terrorists within a people group created and caused significant harm. But we stand this morning as friends, a Muslim and a Christian. The lights that shine up to God and point to him. And so um, I'm going to pray first and then Ayup is going to pray as well. Father, I thank you for the incredible celebration of diversity that you have shown us will be in heaven. And Father, we do welcome and desire to see that same celebration here upon earth. When we look at the life of Jesus, we see him constantly welcoming people of different ethnicity and diversity. And his disciples didn't like it. It's awkward. It's hard. It's difficult. But we stand today against things like what happened in our world ten years ago. Men and women harming one another. Causing pain. Seeking out vengeance and revenge. And we stand instead together united to see your kingdom, your love, your life expanded to the world. We ask you to please bring comfort to those who experience such great loss. And bring unity in our country, in our world to unite under you, the one God who calls us all to Christ and to love others. 
Father, thank you for AUP and Turkey that has been such a significant country to help us as the United States for many years. We thank you for the partnership that we have been able to experience in our world and we welcome now even as we stand together in this day of memory. God, thank you very much for providing this opportunity for us <coughs> today. And as we lived friendly for hundreds of years as being Christians, Muslims, and the Jews in that area peacefully and of course, there were many, many, many radicals to destroy our relationships, but everything is depends on you. And please, please protect us from these, from these uh, extremist groups located in all, all relig- religions. And please don't let them break down our relationships and don't let them to destroy these wonderful <coughs> people again and please bestow your mercy upon us and never never let us to have that kind of people in any religion and we pray you to bring us much much more closer and to understand each other wholeheartedly We welcome you, O oh God. Transform us into the kind of people who really represent Jesus in his life. Who demonstrate a true love for one another and for those who are different. Who are outside of our familiarity and understandings. Jesus said to us, by this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Yes, for one another within our community, but also love for others outside of our community. The greatest commandment is this, to love God and to love others. Thank you for this chance for us as a local church to perhaps be a little bit better equipped to welcome and accept and reach out to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Thank you all for coming today. Um, If you would uh, like an opportunity perhaps to talk with someone or to pray with someone, uh, we'd be happy. There'll be some of us here at the front that can do that for you. Um, Interesting topic for sure understanding the differences among us and rejoicing and celebrating with those. Thanks for joining us today and we look forward to seeing you next week. Have a great week.